Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, glad that you're back for another edition of Just Getting Started. This is a really fun one for me because I called up my friend Dave Mandel, there he is on the screen, and I said, I really want you to come on and talk about comedy because life is pretty dark right now, Dave, and I just thought I needed someone to come on and share his experience with how he got started in the comedy world and writing, and you were my number one call, and your first thing that you said to me was, you sure? And you want to, if you want to cancel on me, that's just fine. And I thought, well, you're insane. Hi, Dave. Thanks for coming on. Hi. You know, I'm still waiting to be told any second now. Oh, so and so just called back. So yeah, no, okay, I'll I'll go for it. I was thrilled to have you come on because number one, you and I have talked about something related to this. The world does not always need to revolve around celebrities or famous people for strange reasons or what have you. And I wanted to talk to you because you have written and been behind some of the most impactful shows in the television world. And it's a really hard nut to crack. That is a very kind way of saying the movies I've worked on are garbage, but thank you. I appreciate Hot that. Hot garbage. <laughs> it's kind of like the secrets of Alvin Stumbledore. Let's just not even, let's not even talk about the movie stuff, please. Let's, the TV work, the TV work is immaculate. So let's just stick it's, to it. Okay. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, at what point did you realize in your life growing up that you were funny or, or do you even realize um, that now? No, I'm I, I'm aware. I mean, it it starts, it it starts, it starts in a way that um, I guess you know, in ways obviously you don't think of your career. It starts in ways where you are like I don't know, like sitting like on the Upper East Side in New York City, like in a coffee shop with your friends, and you're making ice cream come out of their nose, but like regularly. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like we're again, and I was a very studious, you know, like chairman of the governing council kind of like, you know, must go to Ivy league kind of kid. But I was aware at least I could make my friends laugh. I was not the class clown. I'm not sure the majority of, I think my elementary and high school, like people I went to with, like when I went into comedy were like, huh? Like, like didn't necessarily know me in that way. But I think if you were in my little group, like I was the really sort of wise assy, whatever, just, you know, quietly like to, to just them. And so I was not unaware of that, but also at the same time, you know, the notion of like, you know, 
comedy work, certainly even growing up in New York City and I guess vaguely having some family friends that were working as executives at businesses and stuff, it just it didn't necessarily seem like a job or anything where it was like, oh, I'm going to do this, where you do hear stories. So I was doing a lot of the things that a lot of like like future comedy writers do like, you know, like listening and memorizing like old Steve Martin albums and like Saturday Night Live and watching Letterman and obsessing on it, but not with any sort of goal, not with any like, I'm going to be a comedy writer. I'm, you know, I just, I was just so into it and then discovered sort of later on, oh, you can do this. I, I you know, I was sort of, I, it sounds silly, but I was sort of aiming to be just sort of a I, I hope to be the most amusing lawyer at Skadden Arps. You know what I mean? Like that was sort of the, at the time, what seemed like an achievable goal. Like let's put that guy on our mergers and acquisition team. He's really funny. Like that was, that was, the, He's gonna that kill was the goal. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. It's like, he'll do a, okay, he'll do a fine enough job on the work. It'll all be a little later. It'll be handed in the morning it's due, but He's a fun guy to have around in the middle of the night. So, yeah. He is one so, wild again, and yeah. crazy guy in the court. I get yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was sort of that, if that makes any sense. Like, I, I definitely was aware of it, but didn't know you could do anything with it, which was sort of half the battle, I guess. So, yeah. Dave Mandel, a veep of Curb Your Enthusiasm of Seinfeld. It's kind of incredible, your hit list. What was your first foray in? And by the way, don't think I didn't hear the very subtle... Ivy League. You went to Harvard. Yes, we get it. For those of us who can well, only dream. I knew, I, I knew we weren't going to avoid it because, the, <laughs> you know, again, one of these things where, you know, it's like, how did you get your start? Well, I went to Harvard and I joined the Harvard Lampoon, which is what no struggling comedy writer sitting, you know, in Nebraska wants to hear. But it is what, what I did, you know. And you know, for me, it was so, again, you know, you're asking about the first professional stuff. And in some ways, while the Lampoon was obviously collegiate, it, in hindsight, and again, wasn't thinking this when I was there, but in hindsight, when I look back, that was the first time I was in a, like a real writer's room, even though I didn't know I was in a writer's room. So I, I joined the Lampoon, which is the campus humor magazine. And then all of a sudden you're in this place with, you know, a lot of sort of similar types of people that are all sort of, you know, pasty and sort of, you know, like somewhere on the spectrum when we all can't look each other in the eyes kind of, and don't have the correct emotional responses, but all of a sudden you're kind of like, oh, this is my place. And what you sort of realize is, you know, like, you know, in the sort of like, I'm going to try and make these people laugh. And again, now it's an extension of it. Cause that's all, I mean, in some ways that's for me, all it's ever been, which is just sort of like a desire to make people that I respect laugh and to some extent get them to laugh and maybe on some, you know, ego level to one up them if they're funny to like sort of try and top them. Like, like that's a lot of what comedy is. It's sort of that sort of ego. And so the Lampoon was this first place where I all of a sudden felt like, and again, wasn't a job, but I acted like it was a job. I mean, I stopped going to classes. I was there, you know, 24 hours a day and it's what I was doing. It was my pre-professional, but again, didn't know I was pre-professional. You know what I mean? If that makes well, any sense. Well, yeah. And I think there's a lot of mystique to the lampoon just because of the the myriad of the of the myriad yes famous writers and actors who came out of it the association with the hasty Conan pudding Brian, all that yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff 
Jason Bateman in a wig on a bus somewhere. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of mystique that goes with the lampoon and the comedy writers that came out of Harvard. Yeah, and it was one of those things where, you know, it sounds very odd to say as we sit here in a quick uh, digression into the history of the Lampoon, you know, once upon a time, it's sort of editors were the finest, you know, people at Life Magazine and Harper, you know what I mean? Like that's, that, those are sort of its origins. And somewhere sort of starting in the 70s and then especially into the 80s and then certainly for me into the early 90s, it really just started mass producing these sort of, you know, Saturday Night Live, Simpsons etc people and um and and for me what it really was was that was where i all of a sudden discovered like oh maybe this actually could be a job which again you know let's there was nothing bad about that it was just sort of like all of a sudden it was this place where i felt very comfortable and felt like I'm like, this is what I want to be doing. And then also, oh, you can do it. And it was actually through the Lampoon, we did a summer project for, I'm going to, now I'm taking you so far back. It's crazy. In 19, summer of 91, summer of 91, the newly formed Comedy Central, which was at that point not available on all boxes. There had been Mm. the Ha Channel uh, ha and the comedy channel the joke was always they were each losing 10 million dollars a year and they combined them to form comedy central so they would each lose f- f- only five million a year like it was like time warner and like somebody else and uh they were not on all the boxes and i think if you wanted it you still had to pay like two to two extra dollars a month which meant nobody had it you know certainly not my parents um and we did this thing called mtv give me back my life and it was a written by a couple of us harvard lampoon people it was a fake 10th anniversary parody of mtv that we were assured MTV would fully cooperate with and that would they would be a part of and needless to say they had they wanted nothing to do with it and didn't cooperate with it at all and it was terrible i mean it's not great and it was just the most incredible experience of my life where in some ways the not greatness was some of the best learning i ever sort of did where all of a sudden i'm working on a real TV show and all of a sudden people have to say these lines and you go, oh, that doesn't sound good or we should have rewritten this or now, okay, now we realize we have to rewrite this and all of these things. And even just like the production aspects of thinking about how what you write becomes something. And I I remember in the middle of this thing, um, it was shot on film, which looked really good. Oh, no, sorry. Let me go backwards. The documentary part was all shot on video and it looked terrible and fake. And they built all these really wonderful sets of like, you know, the the there was sort of a sort of a fake Bob Pittman character who was supposed to be the founder of MTV. The the joke being he decided the joke was he 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 realized, you know, I oh God, it's so long ago. There was something about his bravery in putting a strong African-American male like Michael Jackson onto music television. That was a big, that was a big joke at the time. But anyway, but so all these like video scenes of these offices looked terrible and fake, but then there was a, an MTV spring break. It was an all drinking spring break. And we went down somewhere. Maybe we shot it here in LA 
but they shot that on film, even though the real spring break is always broadcast on like live TV and looks like video. And if they had just done the documentary stuff on film, you know, and you learn these lessons that like, you know, again, like this is like the real world. And it was, like I said, it was, it's terrible. And it was just the most incredible experience of my life, both in terms of just, I learned so much. And then the other big thing that came out of it was a consultant at the time, on that show and he actually played a part in it he starred in it too not star but was one of the talking heads in it was um al franken and then al basically and i sort of hit it off and then i graduated and he brought me back down to comedy central the following summer uh they were he was hosting um, comedy coverage of the Democratic and Republican conventions in 1992 and brought me down as a writer on that. That was my first like real gig. So I graduated from Harvard in Boston on a, on a, on a Thursday, drove down to New York on Friday and started working like at full time on the show on like the next Monday. Um, and, uh, and and basically got to write all summer with Al and a, another writer named Billy Kimball, who was the executive producer, and just wrote all summer. And really, in some ways, because it was this, you know, we were filling the convention time. It was just almost like a, a little bit like a telethon, where it's just like we had a lot of space to try things. And it was things that people don't remember now, but like Dan Quayle's wife, Marilyn Quayle had written a thriller, like an actual, like, like thriller novel about a young, like, I think Senator from Indiana who saves the world from communism by defeating Fidel Castro in Cuba. And like we would, Al started the week by like reading from the book. Like he would read live chat, like he would just read chapters and sort of act them out. And then he started doing puppets. And by the final night of the convention, we did like a full scene where Al like played the, his, the heroic, uh, Cuban, like, like maid who like, you know, saves you know, just like, but like, you know, again, it was all silly, but at the same time we were just sort of like, it was very experimental in a really fun way. And it was just this, you know, just again, this incredible learning experience, really learning how Al wrote comedy and learning, especially about for me. And again, I was a comedy nerd, but there were, you know, and there were things I knew really well, but then you work, I worked with Al and he's such a huge Bob and Ray fan just to sort of, you know, and had worked with them and all this kind of stuff. And it was really the building blocks of his comedy, which, was non-existent for me. I knew who they were. I appreciated them. I knew, you know, Chris Elliott was uh, Bob Elliott's son, but I I didn't have that level of appreciation. And I so I, that was an, you know, and again these sort of again building blocks where I sort of immersed myself not only in Bob and Ray, but just in this way Al approached comedy and sort of wrote these sort of pieces and wrote all summer together. And at by the end of the summer where we had you know, uh, this really wonderful rapport, but also just, you know, had also truly become friends. And I, you know, I consider him my mentor at the end of the summer, he basically said, I want to mention you to Lorne Michaels and Jim Downey uh, and get you over to Saturday Night Live. And, you know, so we did the, the Republican convention was in August. And by the end of August, I was, I was at Saturday Night Live for what was the 92, 93 season for the first, I did three years at SNL. So that's sort of, the journey to SNL. And again, another, just these things, each one of them, 
especially these early ones, they're just such learning experiences because again, now I'm still working with Al and then you add Jim Downey into the mix and comedy people know Jim and he's got a little bit of more, a little bit more PR in this sort of modern times, but you know, Jim is sort of, it's hard to explain Jim Downey sort of, he's been at Saturday Night Live, I think since the second year of SNL, you know, has been the producer, the head writer, the head of update, all these things. And uh, he just quite possibly is the funniest human being alive. And so learning from him and Al together, you know, just when I sit back now and look at my own writing, you know, I, I see both of them in my stuff and just what I learned. But again, also the Saturday Night Live experience where every week, you are almost like the mini, not exactly director, because there is a director, but you are, they are the camera director. You are the one talking to the actors, giving notes. You're the one writing your script, almost like the mini producer of your sketch. So that whatever those, you know, five or six, or unfortunately when SNL sketches are long, you know, seven or eight minutes, um, you know, you are, again, it's almost like you are the showrunner of the, that mini you know, that min, that, that little mini period. And so again, you know, it, it was just this insane, they were three years, but they were like, you know, dog years of learning yeah. where I just, you know, I, I came out of there gray haired a little bit, but also, you know, just every year, especially of my first couple of years as like a professional writer, I, I think in a certain magnitude, I was a better writer than I was the year before, just in terms of, just attacking things and just how to do the job, but also striving for things, you know, and, and just learning about like what I wanted to do in terms of like, you know, with the comedy of just like, I get certain aspects of like, you know, just not wanting to repeat things and, and really wanting to do something that you hadn't seen. And a lot of those kinds of things that I are, you know, I, I like to think still with me now, but also how to craft a joke. I mean, just like, like writing basics where, you know, you go in as anybody does with a certain amount of ego of like, I just got hired at SNL. I'm a, I'm a comedy writer. And it's just like Jim Downey, Al Franken. Oh no, I don't, I don't know anything. You know what I mean? It's sort of this, this sort of incredible thing. And it was three insanely wonderful and three insanely just horrible years. Cause that's what it Saturday night live is. And, you know, I lived in the office. I slept there a couple of nights a week. I, you know, it just, you know, again, wonderful and miserable. And, you know, I can remember throwing a monologue out and literally writing a monologue between dress and air and getting it on cards and getting it up for like Emilio Estevez because there was a whole thing that went wrong where there was a cold opening about the kid getting caned in Singapore and the joke was he played the kid in the sketch and then he comes out for the monologue and the idea was we accidentally had caned him during the sketch and so he was had like was raw like on his buttocks and his back where he had been caned and the caning in the cold opening froze the audience we had to rewrite that the entire thing so that they kept winding up but didn't actually thwunk like every time he actually got hit like that was such a story at the time that the, the audience kind of was like Ugh. so the caning monologue got thrown in the garbage and we like I, I wrote a monologue uh i think about like 
him and whatever happened to the rest of the breakfast club, but literally wrote it at 11.09 PM and he performed it at 11.35. And so those kinds of things, like to this day, I can remember that adrenaline rush and again, wonderful and awful. And by the end of three years, um, I, I was more than done. Um, and I left, um, I, I came out to, to LA. I finally came out to LA with, of course, you know, I was a New Yorker, no driver's license. So I was like living at the Mondrian hotel, taking taxi cabs everywhere. Cause there was, you know, again, no Uber. So I was just like no calling independent taxi and having them drive me places. And I started taking, uh, driving lessons and I would hire the driving lesson to pick me up at the Mondrian hotel. And the lesson would be me driving to the CBS Radford lot. And then I'd get out at the CBS Radford lot when the lesson was over and I'd go to work at Seinfeld. And I, I worked there obviously with Larry David. Larry's the one that hired me um, and, you know, and really learned to write, you know, sort of sitcoms. I mean, you know, again, you know, talking about more mentors, the next mentor and, <clears throat> really everything I know about writing sitcoms about running a sitcom really is from Larry and Jerry too, but you know, Larry then with curb too, just like Larry, just, just the ways in which <clears throat> I can remember, you know, again, watching TV forever, huge TV fan, huge Seinfeld fan, um, you know, had some stories approved. I put it up on my whiteboard, you know, I, I, I outlined my show and I just remember, Larry kind of coming in and what I had is like a full act one of like a show when he was done with it, he just kind of like mushed it down and he, it was like, it was two scenes of the show and all of a sudden it was just like click. Oh, I see. And what he was doing was getting rid of all these unnecessary things, forcing things into the one scene together, pieces of information. And what ends up happening is I was what I thought was halfway done. Now I'm two scenes in. So where I'm going to get to ultimately is so much deeper and farther and more interesting because all of a sudden there's all this more available real estate. And that, that was a part of it. But again, from Larry, really just this, and especially when we moved on to Curb Your Enthusiasm, again, I, he started it. I had nothing to do with it and then kind of joined him later. Um, with uh, Jeff Schaefer and Alec Berg um, because we needed an office and he was kind enough to give us real estate space. And we kind of started helping him out and then kind of formalized it and started sort of, you know, directing and exec producing and writing the show with him. And just the full on, it's just not worth doing if it's just not the funniest I'll say effing because I didn't ask you if we're allowed to curse or not. So yeah, you're allowed to curse. Thing. Yeah. Oh, allowed to curse. If it's not the funniest fucking thing in the world, there's no point to it. And if that means I remember, you know, I remember Larry doing, as far as I'm concerned, the first, you know, like he did a joke. We did a joke about uh, uh, the, the, it was all about the plastic casing that Amazon used to send everything in and how hard and impossible it was to like open that. And so there was a scene and I can remember the line, you know, like uh, Jeff or Susie's like, you know, use a box cutter. And Larry, we, we, Larry, I, I, we pitched Larry the line, or maybe we even had it in the outline. What am I, Muhammad Atta? And again, this is really close to 9-11. Yeah. And I just remember on, only Larry David, only this show. I mean, I hate to say it, only us. And it was, when you hear it now, it's a pretty funny fucking joke. But at the time, 
I think it also took your breath away. Like you couldn't believe you were hearing it, but also that you were laughing at it. And that that's Larry and that's Curb. And again, just that all comes with me. And, it, and it's there in Seinfeld too. It's in the DNA of Seinfeld, but it really, I, I don't know, metastasizes into Curb Your Enthusiasm. And, and, and beyond that, just the way he you know, just like no notes, no interference, just, just, this is how we do it. Not using a traditional writer's room, writer's room where writers are like, oh, it's your turn to write the script and all of that kind of stuff. And kind of this gang right thing just learned again from him in some ways, just a full aversion to that and really giving writers individual responsibility to go off and write their episode and things of that nature, which, you know, again, I'll get in as much into any part of this that you want, but just like, again, like when I look at how, when I eventually then took over Veep um, from Armando Iannucci, how I ran the show, how I wrote the show is all of that. I mean, again, there's, there's Jim Downey, there's, there's, uh, there's Al Franken in me in terms of like the jokes, especially we were doing a lot of politics and I did a lot of, you know, political humor on SNL and I was a government major at Harvard, but how I ran the show, how I put it together, how I constructed the show was very much Larry, David, Curb and, uh, and Seinfeld. And so, you know, again, all part of that journey. And maybe, maybe then and there at that point, I sort of felt like, okay, now I kind of know what I'm doing. So, you know, a process. In 30 years of interviewing. Was there a, was there a question? Or did you have a I've question? I've never Sorry. had more follow-up <laughs> questions in my life. I kept thinking, oh God, make a note. Oh God, make a no, note. I'm sorry. Oh, like I, I realized like I've been speaking for a very long time. And if you're listening to me on like whatever 1.5 or two, I don't know if you're keeping up. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I gotta tell you, if you're listening, I think you're with me. Okay. Let me try to imagine what I think your questions are. And I'm gonna I'm we're gonna unpack a lot of stuff because this is so fascinating. Why okay, didn't you ready? have let, a driver's let, license? This yeah. is so, first of all, <laughs> I will always drive you from now on because you will get lost. <laughs> you are, you are, you are one nonstop Mulholland drive. And, and I love this. Okay. Stop. Here we go. Number one, who was the cast yep. in 92 when you joined in SNL? Was, it was a really fascinating time for SNL. It was right at the end of the glory days of Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman. So they were like the heads of the cast. Kevin Nealon, obviously the late Chris Farley, Sandler Spade. So those were the guys on the, the, the younger guys were sort of on the uprise. And I believe at the end of my first season, Dana left. And then I think at the end of my second season, Phil left. And I think think at the end of my third season when I left too, I can't remember if Mike Myers left then or in the after the second season. But anyway, those were the guys that were kind of leaving and Kevin Nealon had been doing update and then he gave that up and then Norm MacDonald started doing update. Now the late Norm MacDonald, just too many mm -hmm. late people. But so that was sort of that cast. And it was, it was a fascinating time because it was this really weird, I mean, first of all, number one, you, I remember like when we first, you know, when I first got there again, nothing to do with me, it was that election year. And 
you know, the big, uh, the certainly one of the big sketches I worked on that uh, it was a sketch that Al and I wrote, and then Jim threw a bunch of stuff in that is still one of my favorites. Was the uh, Clinton going into Mc, jogging into McDonald's? Remember the way he used to do that all the time? It was <laughs> yeah. him going into McDonald's and then uh, explaining the Somalian warlords by stealing food off people's uh, trays and shoving it in his mouth and go warlords and whatever. And I mean that was Phil Hartman at his oh, just I loved him you know so best. Much. And so those guys kind of fade. And, and that year, I think the show won an Emmy, uh, not for writing, unfortunately, but we won an Emmy. And then those guys started sort of peeling off. And then, of course, the Saturday Night Dead article started. But it was also this weird thing. But by the end, when a lot of the quote unquote adults had left, we actually did a sketch at the beginning of that third season of like, who the hell is going to play Clinton? And the joke was sort of, this is what Adam Sandler's Clinton would look like. This is what... Farley's would look like this is what Tim Meadows would look like what Spades Clinton would look like and um, Lauren ended up hiring Michael McKeon to have like an actual a really funny and great guy but also an adult in the cast and he ended up playing Clinton but it was this sort of it was a very strange time at SNL that final year I was there I think the cast ballooned up to like 17 people because Lauren was just sort of throwing things at the wall so it was this very strange time 92 to 95 is my uh my long answer to you. <laughs> what was your favorite skit that you wrote? Ooh, um, the Clint McDonald's would be up there just because it was certainly, I, I still love it. I think it's it, it like every part of it works like it, like it's, I can watch it right now. And again, it's of its time in terms of the warlord story, but it, it does work. I loved doing commercial parodies. And when I look back, which is, it's sort of a little ironic because it's the least live part of Saturday night live. If that makes any sense, you know, you actually shoot them and then you, you know, you film them and you edit them, which maybe, maybe somewhere in there was a message to myself, but I, I love that. And, uh, Jim Downey had this, uh, explanation of Saturday Night Live commercials that I has always stuck with me, which is um, non-existent problem, ineffective solution. And his, his joke was always like, there was one about like, uh, do you have rats climbing out of your toilet? Well, here's a product that will put them to sleep for an hour. And it's just sort of like, no one has rats climbing out of their toilet. And if you did, you wouldn't want to put the rats only to sleep for an hour. It was called sleepy time rat something or other. And that weird philosophy of just sort of stuff. And I, I did, I don't know if I always followed it, but like I did one called that's not yogurt. I did action figures for the movie Philadelphia, like children's action figures where it was like Philadelphia, you know, and it was like, it's gay attorney, Andrew, whatever. And his longtime companion, Miguel with real net and laser action. They had all these weapons that obviously were not in the movie Philadelphia that I'm, I'm quite fond of that I uh, wrote with a couple of people. Um, and uh, so those were some fun. Those were some, I don't know. Those were the things that come to mind, I guess. I did love writing the commercial parodies. Let's talk O'Reilly Auto Parts, people. Or as you might know from their jingle, O-O-O O'Reilly Auto Parts. They're in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offers friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs because you know when you need your car fixed, you need somebody who knows what they're talking about and is helpful, has a smile on their face, and gets you back on the road. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts can test your battery for free in or out of your car. If it needs to be replaced, they'll help you just 
find the right battery for your vehicle. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fix, or a quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Whether you're a car aficionado or an auto novice, you will find the employees at O'Reilly Auto Parts knowledgeable, helpful, and the best of all, friendly. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eisen. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eisen. Let's talk sleep number, people, because quality sleep is so essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is dissolved for your ever-evolving sleep needs. And the same thing for your partner, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side, helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature, quiets your snores or your partner's? Sleep Number does that. My Sleep Number setting is 60. My wife's is 70. Ten numbers apart, but it truly is the world of difference. The Sleep Number sleep that you get is unbelievable. You will love it. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now you could save 50%. That's 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This segment is sponsored by Dell Technologies Small Business Virtual Podference starting on May 10th. Whether you're still working remotely or back together again, let Dell Technologies help safeguard your business with modern devices in Windows 11 Pro. Saturday Night Live just seems to be such a crazy place to work with the deadlines that you're talking about. And with the crossover of cast, it seems to be a place where you're working at a show that's the best of the best of the time, or at least it's Saturday Night Live. How do you know when it's time to go? How do you know when it's time to go? Uh, For me... I was unhappy. I mean, I, I honestly, and, and some of that probably was, and I've been back and I've been back since I've gone back. I went back years ago once with Jerry Seinfeld. Um, when Seinfeld ended, I went back with him and then I went back with Julia when she hosted once as well. And it's definitely changed. It's the, the, I think people, people stay longer. And part of the reason I think they stay longer is they have lives um, and I, I, I don't know. They, they definitely have lives. I, I can sit here and I can also say to you, we never left. And some of that was, I think in a good way, Jim Downey, and maybe in a bad way, Jim Downey, but we also, we rewrote sketches, you know, into like, you know, five in the morning and some of it was fucking around, but also we also really rigor rigorously rewrote sketches with Jim sort of from on high often, you know, just adding these things you know, touches to these sketches that, you know, radically changed them and made them better. Was it worth it? I don't know. I definitely like, I am a better writer for watching and learning. And as he rewrote sketches, but I had no life. I mean, I know that none of us really had lives. Even people that were older than me that were married were not home. You know what I mean? Some of them occasionally tried to sneak out and come back. It wasn't fun. Somewhere in that third year, we started, you know, I, I'm very aware of like, we were going to the after party and then we were seeking out like an after, after party, like late night poker houses and nonsense like that. And at some point, 
I don't know, you know, you're sitting and I would, and my big thing was I always came home whatever time it was. And I watched the show on videotape because being there live, it always seemed better than it was. And when you went home and watched it, you really got a real sense of what the, what the audience was seeing. And when you couldn't hear that amazing live audience, like right there when it was on camera. So I'm sorry, when it was on television and you know, it's not surrounding you in that same way. And the energy doesn't come through like that. The sketches live and die much more on their own. And somewhere in there, especially as it phased into that third year, it, the shows didn't, I, the shows definitely didn't seem as good. So then you start to go, I'm killing myself and the show isn't great. And somewhere in there also, I was very aware of like, boy, I drank a lot of wine on Saturday. Again, I'm not talking about like seven days a week of drinking, but like, I don't know when you have a job and you're not happy, like creatively and also on Saturday night, you feel the need to go play in an, like an all night poker place and you drank a lot of wine. You start to see in a, in a great world, you say to yourself, it may be time to move on. And that was a combination of those things was definitely uh, on my mind. And also the, uh, you know, again, that, you know, that, that that's a big part of the answer. And then the limits of the format, the limit, I mean, the incredibly wonderful, you can do anything as long as it's sort of five minutes. And I remember starting to have these ideas about like breaking format a little bit. And we definitely did one or two things. We did a show when Charlton Heston hosted, it's one of my, you know, you were asking about favorite things. One of my proudest moments, we did a thing where Charlton Heston in the cold opening falls asleep and then he wakes up and the show is now on the planet of the apes and the entire we, it's all apes like we did full ape makeup we brought in the old we, we found the guy who owned all the planet of the apes costumes and we brought them in and so it was a, an ape show with apes doing sketches and humans in like chains and stuff and it was full insane and full wonderful insanity and he gets captured they throw a net over him and he says you know take your hands off me you damn dirty apes live from new york it's saturday night and then they let me reshoot the entire opening montage you know the whole like it's saturday night with chris farley so instead it was it's saturday night live with you know it's saturday night with general ursus Erko, Cornelius. And so it was all Planet of the Apes people. And except it was eight people in New York nightclubs doing like that kind of like, uh, you know, That's that amazing. thing. Yeah. And then like all the crowd shots were apes and there was like an ape roller skater, you know, like we basically, I reshot the opening montage. And then when the cold open, I'm sorry, when the monologue starts, two apes bring Heston out in chains and the entire audience is apes and they don't believe a human can speak. And that's the, that's the start of a Saturday night live episode, you know, in 1993 that I will, what again, my, you know, working with Heston, the, the, the ape stuff. I mean, it was incredible. I, if it had been up to me, I would have done something like that every week. You know what I mean? And you start to, I don't know, again, not, not exactly chafe, but the limits of the format. And so, you know, I will simply say Saturday Night Live was a dream. And I definitely, though, you know, I wanted I wanted more. I wanted to do the sitcom thing. I mean, I'll be very honest with you. If I'd ever gotten the opportunity, I would have killed to work for Letterman. I never never had the never. It sort of never quite happened. I guess I did Saturday Night Live and I certainly wouldn't trade that. 
but I wanted to, uh, Letterman. I wanted to work for more than life itself. But anyway, I, I came Why? out to LA. Why? What was it? That for me, it, that for me, you know, staying up late and being, you know, tired all every day, every, the next day, it was just like that to me was like, I've never seen comedy like this at the time. It was so different than what, than everything else that was, you know, and it was sort of like that, that, you know, that Letterman detached irony, the sort of show that makes fun of it being a show. Again, these are not original thoughts, but just especially like, I remember like, I remember completely not appreciating Johnny Carson. I can appreciate him now, but I could not, it just seemed I don't know. Like I, I sound like a weirdo. Like it seems square. I don't know. I don't, you know, it just, it just seemed old and old fashioned. And then Letterman with like the guests he had and I don't know, you know, Bill Murray. And I, I just was like so different. And I can remember right up to the end when he left NBC, there's a moment like in his second to last show where he's about to bring out like, I think like Bruce Springsteen or something. And the crowd starts going crazy before Springsteen even is coming out. Like they're going crazy because they know he's bringing out Springsteen and they go so wild. He's like, next up. And they just, the crowd's just like, whoa. And he's like, you don't know what I'm going to say. And they're like, ah, you know, whatever. And he goes, all right, well, Paul, it's, and he says something like, it's time to gas the audience or like kill the audience or something. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy hostile. And it's so funny. And it's, that's Letterman. And I just, it would have been, I would have loved it, I think, or hated it. Who knows? But that, that was where I always wanted to go. But like I said, I, I just, I wanted something else, I guess, at that point. That was, that was the real reason. And then your career fell apart because you landed on that crap show Seinfeld. What a total bummer! Yes. What was your, what was the, what was your entree to Seinfeld? Uh, a very strange entree uh, that will be helpful to nobody who's like, what can I? What tips can I take here? Um, uh, I, my entree was I was watching the show, so let me start. That was my entree, which was I think I came into it a little late in, but much earlier than a lot of the world in America. Um, I think I had missed the initial sort of summer run of five episodes and kind of came to it during that next sort of that second season, which wasn't a full season either, but kind of discovered it in there and was watching it on Wednesday nights when, you know, no, at that point, you know, critics were mentioning it, but most people weren't mentioning it. Um, and I was really obsessed with it because again, you know, you talk about things you hadn't seen before, I, you know, obviously there were, you know, shows, I mean, I was a huge you know, New York City reruns at night. I was a huge Odd Couple and Honeymooners fan, which was Channel 11, uh, WPIX from P-I-X. 11 to midnight. Uh-huh. And, you know, those both those shows, New York City, you know, two guys living in an apartment and Alice and Ralph living out in wherever they were. So those were New York shows. But the idea of four, four New Yorkers in cruddy apartments sitting in a coffee shop was about as close conceptually to what I was doing with my time and what I had been doing in high school. You know, I talked about making my idiot friends laugh. That was happening not in Monk's Diner, but it was happening in the Tramway Diner on uh, 59th Street. It was happening, you know, in diners up and down the east side. Because, you know, New, you know, in the west side of New York City, diners stay open 24 hours. And you can just go and sit. You get a grilled cheese and you get a fries. Yeah. You get a soup and you're, you're good to go. And yeah, you're, so Tom, you're Tom's us- diner. You're Tom's diner is my yeah. school diner. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it's a place and it becomes your hangout. 
And all of a sudden there's a show with people hanging out in a diner in a, just a way that just was baffling to me. Um, and you know, again, everyone joke, you know, the, the show about nothing. And I never thought it was nothing, but it was, they were talking about the same nonsense that I felt like I was talking. Not, not, none of my friends were standups. None of them were even comedy people, but it was that, that obsessive level of grudge holding and whatnot that just, you know, it was, that just spoke to me. Um, and so I was aware of it as a fan and then Jeff Schaefer and Alec, who I mentioned, they were a year ahead of me in school and we had written the MTV show together and then they graduated and they sort of, they had worked in LA and they were in New York for a while on the early Conan O'Brien show. And then they were going back out to LA to basically pack up and come back to work at Conan full time when they got hired actually at Seinfeld first. And so my first exposure to the show was actually visiting them during my off weeks. I would just come out to California more or less to stop myself from going into the SNL offices. And I would kind of sleep on their couch and eventually they had a guest room. And basically I stayed on their couch and then I just would go to work with them. And I just, cause I had nothing to do and I didn't drive whatever. So I would just go to work with them. And it was a funny thing where Larry had worked at SNL, Jerry had hosted SNL, a couple of people, Carol Liefer had worked at SNL, uh, Peter Melman, I knew his brother. So it was sort of a room, uh, Max and Tom, uh, Gamble and Prost, they had worked at SNL. So it was this funny thing where I, I was sort of like the entertainment a little bit. I was the guest. I was the lunch guest every day. And I would just kind of go in, see everybody at breakfast, hang out in Jeff and Alex's room and sort of help them with whatever they were writing for the show, which was really fun to do because it didn't seem like work. I didn't work there. I was just throwing in stuff. It was fun. And then come out for lunch and hang out with everybody and mm-hmm. tell SNL stories and whatnot and kind of go back in. And I did this all throughout the year. I mean, I didn't work there, but I was there all the time. And uh, at the end of that year, which was the end of my third year at the show, Larry came through New York and was sort of like, hey, why don't you submit some stuff for the show? Um, And I actually never even got around. I was working on his submissions when he kind of called me and just said, you're hired. I was like, I didn't show you. I didn't show you any submissions. He's like, "Eh, yeah, I talked to, I talked to Downey. It's fine. Um, And uh, I do remember when I was like pitching out, I think one of my, my first Seinfeld episodes, I pitched him something and I think he said something to me like, was this on your list? Cause I, you know, that's sort of how you would pitch. You would work a list. And I was like, was this on your submission list? Like this was an idea I was going to pitch him to get the job. And I was like, yeah, this was on my list. He goes, okay, I would have hired you. And I was just like, oh, okay, good. So anyway, um, but yeah, that was sort of my house. So I kind of was a friend of the show before I actually worked there, which was actually a very lovely way of kind of entering that world where unlike SNL, where when I started there, I, I barely knew anybody. I was at the time, I think, you know, the, certainly I think I, I, at the time I was like, I literally, I was still, I was the, I was, it was, it was August. It was the last month of my 21st year. So I was still technically 21 when I got to SNL and I was just afraid for the first, you know, year probably, but certainly the first, like my, whatever my, I think I had like a 13 week contract and I, and I, you know, I remember it was my birthday and I woke up, went to work. I, was scared to make a phone call and I had never given anybody the phone number. So my 22nd birthday, 
I did not speak to anybody I had known for more than like, other than Al Franken for more than like a month and nobody knew it was my birthday. You know, that's how sort of on edge I was. Whereas, you know, when I kind of started at Seinfeld, it was almost like I'd already been there a year, which was a very nice transition. It was like I did the summer program or something. Um, So that was a very nice transition. But anyway, that's, that was my entree into Seinfeld. So yeah. It's that time of year, people. Spring has sprung, and that means spring cleaning, or at least the partner in your life is demanding that you do it. Whether that means stocking up on cleaning supplies or swapping out your winter clothes for new spring clothes, make sure you're using Ibotta and get real cash back with every purchase. Ibotta is a free app that gives you the most cash back every time you shop on hundreds of items from groceries to beauty supplies to toys. The average Ibotta user earns $256 per year. That could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip, that flight you've been eyeing, or the fancy dinner you've been craving. Join the over 50 million users and earn cash back every time you shop from over 2,700 brands and retailers. And right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 for just trying Ibotta by using the code Eisen when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use my code E-I-S-E-N. That's I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Play or App Store and use my code Eisen. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. What was your favorite episode that you wrote? Of Seinfeld? Mm-hmm. Um, probably, yeah, I mean, I, I liked them all, don't get me wrong. But when push comes to shove, the the Bizarro Jerry for me, which is a little ironic only because it was actually the year after Larry left. And I honestly couldn't begin to tell you, and I never want to think about whether Larry would have approved the episode or not. I, I don't ever want to go there in my head. Um, but uh, it, it just, it was, you know, it, it was very much, it was based in the sort of world of bizarro Superman, who was Superman's opposite. So it was very comic book based, which is a real hobby of mine. I, I, I'm a collector. I collect, uh, I collect uh, original comic art. I collect movie props, whatnot, um, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it was comic book based with it, which in Jerry was very into comic books. And then within it, it, every story on Seinfeld was often very personal, but it had a bunch of things in it, including, which she doesn't enjoy me saying, the the Manhands characters in there, which was, I'll say, loosely based on my my now wife, uh, Becky, where she grew oh, up no. on, a, on a she she grew up on a farm in Maine, and she always used to complain about her hands being very rough and sort of whatever. And I always joke because she grew up on a farm, whereas you know I grew up you know as this you know sort of, I was raised by my mother as this, you know, to the manner born, you know what I mean? And, you know, these hands have never done an actual honest day's, you know, work. And so I have very <laughs> beautiful, soft, delicate hands. Um, so anyway, 
the rough dry hands became large monstrous man hands because that's that's how i wrote that's how you wrote seinfeld you took things from your life and you you know you magnified them or you did them to the power of 10 and you changed them but that's that's the that's the original idea she's the, the original idea becomes this other thing um and so that's in there i mean there's just a whole bunch of stuff in there and it just uh and again not to loop back around but not exactly format breaking per se but certainly format breaking adjacent in terms of these sort of Jerry and George and Kramer's opposite numbers and this bizarro world within the show. And we change the theme at the end of the show. It's a bizarro theme version. You know, I, I love that later on, Peter Melman and I did a backwards episode based on Pinter's The Betrayal called The Betrayal, where it it works backwards. And it's about Jerry and George, Jerry having an affair with George's girlfriend and George knowing about it and working backwards like the the Pinter play. I don't think Harold Pinter has any idea we did it, but we did do it and I'm sure he would have hated it. But the entire episode is backwards and it is the backwards episode. And again, I I love that. I mean, you know, it's like my great regret in life is I had one other idea for an episode, a Seinfeld episode that I we never got to do because Jerry ended the show and I always wanted to do it. And it was another format breaker. It was the idea was going to be the gang goes on a vacation. I don't know. Jerry would have had like a gig or something and everyone would have gone along. And it was basically going to be like uh, the bad version. I, I, I never got into like, where is it? But let's just say he goes to Mexico to like a resort town to like perform. I guess it could have also been a cruise ship. Uh, it would have been another version of it. But the gist of it was so they go to wherever the cruise ship, the hotel, wherever. And then in the hotel, you have Jerry's hotel room that becomes your set. And you see only sort of the sitting area of the hotel room with the bathroom, more or less where Jerry's bathroom is and the bedroom back there. And then across the hallway is Kramer's hotel room and they're coming back and forth. And then there's a I don't know, a Mexican cantina that they keep meeting in or the bar downstairs that becomes the coffee shop. And so it would have, the idea was it would have been in Mexico, but it would have been the show, but not the show. And I, it's my great Seinfeld regret. I mean, everything else <laughs> is rebooted. Why can't they reboot that for one night? Oh, everything else uh, is, come on. I think we're all good. We're all good. But uh, that, would have been a, that was the one again. I always wanted to do. I think it is, you know, to his credit, you know, I think there were a million reasons Jerry ended it at the time. Um, but you know, his core philosophy was certainly leave people wanting more. You know, he talked a lot at the time about the Beatles and, you know, it wasn't lost on me somewhere in there that there was like a fab Four like entertainment weekly cover of some sort, you know, and the desire of like, is part of, I mean, the Beatles are the Beatles, but part of why we love them is because you can't, and I'm not talking, I'm not talking about what eventually happened with the deaths, but you just, they ended it and you, therefore you couldn't have any more Beatles and, you know, the going out on top the leaving them wanting more, there's, there's a lesson in there um, that I definitely absorbed. Uh, and so it's, it's good. It's done, but yeah, that would have been a fun episode. What was the greatest difference then in transitioning from Curb and and Seinfeld or from Seinfeld to Curb? What was the greatest difference in how the two shows are put together? Um, well, 
I mean, DNA-wise, they're incredibly similar. I mean, obviously, different characters. It's Larry, all that kind of stuff. But the DNA is is very similar. Obviously, you don't have the network restraints. And so, obviously, there's the cursing and the subject matter maybe gets even that much more intense. Um, you know, obviously, the biggest thing, it's a huge difference, but it's also not a difference, is on Seinfeld, we, you know, we pitched out an idea, we outlined it, and then we would write a script. Um Everything happens the same way on Curb Your Enthusiasm, but there is no script. But the outline is as detailed as any outline in the world, scene by scene, what has to happen, the key components, and occasionally a couple of important key jokes. If they're, if they're, if they're, if they're important to the plot, those jokes are in there. And then Larry and the group improv and we sort of shape it and punch it up as we go live, which is wonderful. It's like, it's almost like doing live television. It's like, we're, you know, it's like punching it up and making it better without like this net, which is incredible from an adrenaline work experience. But what people don't understand is that the outline I could take, you could give me a curb outline that I didn't even work on. You could just give me like whatever they're doing right now, whatever Larry and Jeff are doing right now, you could give me one of their outlines and I could turn that into a script in 24 hours. That's right. how tight those outlines are because all I, it would all, all the heavy lifting is there. All I would have to do is, you know, write some chit chat in between the pieces that need to be there. And so it's radically different because of the improv, but it's exactly the same. And that, and, 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 and again, maybe just more so again, it's like, you know, if, if Larry was George, or if I should say if George was a side of Larry, curb Larry is that much more a side of Larry. I mean, so there's that, that magnification and I, one of the things I always love about the show is just that he's not afraid to play it as TV mogul Seinfeld creator, rich guy, Larry David, and that there are, there are rich man's problems. And sometimes when he enacts his revenge, he enacts revenge, you know, like by hiring an orchestra as only a rich guy can, which after, you know, after a thousand years of everybody sort of playing, you know, I live in a small apartment in New York City, there's just something funny about a guy like willing to play. Yeah, I have a giant house in the flats of Brentwood. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I there's something about that that I enjoy as an evolution of television. So wherever that Yeah, and it's in. funny how it doesn't feel obnoxious. It just feels expected of no, him. No, it just is. Um but, uh, but that is the other, you know, there's an incredible lesson in there and it goes back to Seinfeld too, which is, you know, one of the shitty notes that you get all your career is especially, you know, the dumber, the executive, the more you get it is sort of like, I don't, you know, the bad version we always used to laugh there because there was an executive that used to say it was, uh, I don't like our guy. I don't like our guy. I don't like our guy for mm -hmm. doing that. Um, and it's just sort of this likability thing. And at this point now, I think I've made a career out of working on shows where the people couldn't be less likable, but they are cast with wonderful 
charming, charismatic people that make you like what they do in spite of the fact that's often what they are doing or saying, certainly in the case of Veep. Um, you know, it, it's horrible. And if it was wrongly cast, you would hate Selena Meyer. Um, again, you know, just as an example, or Larry David. And by the way, there are many people that don't like Larry David. You know, it's like there are people to this day that go, I can't watch it. It makes me uncomfortable. I get it. But they don't, it makes them uncomfortable, but they rarely hate him, if that makes any sense. Do you know what I mean? They don't like the experience, but he is likable, even though it's an unlikable part. And that is what dumb executives can not, can never understand. And they're just so worried about, I don't know, like rounding and smoothing off the rough edges that you get nothing. And I, I definitely, I think one of the things that I love about the stuff I've worked on is it's all sharp edges, which I think is, is necessary. You should have said to the executive, I don't like you. Maybe you wouldn't have been renewed, well, but you know, you could have tried time, it out. Comedy. At the time, a lot of the things we say now, at the time, you know, again, you know, you learn, you know, again, you talk about like career lessons and learning. You know, you're at that phase of your career where it's just like, okay, yes, 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 sir, yes, ma'am. I mean, it mm -hmm. is what it is, you know. And you know, I sometimes I look back and I go, I wish I hadn't I wish I hadn't made those changes or I wish I hadn't done that. And you know, you learn those things. Whereas, you know, nowadays I'm just not going to make that change. You know, if I disagree with it, I'm going to explain to you why. And at some point, if you're going to order me to make that change, then we're probably done and you should find somebody else. But I'm not going to make that change. I'm not going to make a change that ruins the show that I'm then either stuck with that change and having to then whatever it is every week deal with the fact that somehow you gave them, you know, you gave them a lovable nephew that has a lollipop, you know, whatever, whatever the shitty changes or whatever, you know, it's like, I'm not going to like now I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I wrote a show a couple of years ago. Uh, it was sort of a last, it was actually right before Veep or it was a last attempt at trying to do a, uh, uh, I, I still love, you know, from Seinfeld, I do love, and I do miss the classic three camera sitcom, you know, with a live audience and all of that. And I tried one last time uh, for CBS, a show that I, I really liked. Um, I, 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 I won't get into it just because I continue to still hope one day it'll be something. But, uh, you know, wrote the script. Everybody loved it. Or I should say co-wrote the script with uh, uh, Scott and Shauna Silveri. Um, wrote it. Everyone loved it. We went into casting it was a weird year where the kind of people we wanted were just not available or they were on a show that, you know, a year later, the show, those shows ended, but it was a bad year and we couldn't cast it. And we definitely got to that point in the casting where there were some, again, very nice folks, you know, very like network sitcom people that the audience, that the, the network would have approved to make it. And I just had no interest in those people. And we ended up being, we never shot the pilot. I think we built a set and we never shot the pilot. And I will go again. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to try it again, which I, I hope someday I do, but I will go to my grave. Very happy that we never shot it because to this day, it is still once in a blue moon, that really good script that we never did or that really good script that somebody remembers as opposed to the shitty so-and-so pilot with one of the desperate housewives trying to do comedy. And 
and and I will simply say, whatever, 24-year-old David Mandel casts whichever desperate housewife to try and get that show on the air. And those are, again, you know, you, you talk about learning things, but that's that those are lessons that you it's hard to teach when you're 23 or 24 years old like that that you know and again at the time maybe it was the right thing to do to cast whoever they wanted but it never actually works anyway i've confused myself but anyway no you know look you get to make different decisions when you've already established yeah. yourself when and you're in your 20s you're just trying to you're stay trying alive to. yeah Yes, it's it, so. it, it, exactly it was survive it. Yeah. in advance. I mean, that's what's really yes. happening. You're trying to get to the point where you can say that's stupid. I mean, to some extent. Or when you can say no. And for any of you listening, yeah. takes a long time. You know, not everybody just gets to be. You have to you have to do some of that crap you don't want to do in order to survive we in advance. To, you mentioned yeah, sorry. Oh, I was just saying we used to joke, like one of the greatest things that we like used to talk about and to this day, but in the Seinfeld offices was this thing that they used to call the fastest no ever, which was the time NBC called up Larry and wanted to know they were going to do like blackout Thursday, where there was going to be a blackout and all the must see TV shows were going right. to be black. Like there was a blackout in New York because all the shows were in New York. And if you watch the evening, it's like, I don't remember the order of shows, but it's like eight o'clock friends, you know, there's a blackout Monica and, you know, they're stuck in an elevator, whatever. Chandler's stuck in an elevator. And then I can't remember what was at 830, but it was like the single guy or something. Single there's guy. a blackout. Yeah. So there's a blackout. Nine o'clock, Seinfeld. No blackout, no mention of the blackout, nothing. And then 930, whatever. There's a blackout. There's and it a blackout. Was, yeah. Yeah. And it was just, you know, Larry just said no. And it was just like, I mean, it, possibly the most important lesson I took from Seinfeld of just no. Yeah. No, no is an, a very, very valuable word. Fear yeah. is a great motivator and no is a valuable word. You mentioned sharp edges. And yes. when I think of sharp edges, I do think of Veep. And I love yes. Veep because of, <laughs> it was sharp. How did you come to play to come over there and take over? Um, in a very, I guess, you know, as everything else, sort of serendipitously, serendipitous, strange way, which was, I, I was a huge fan of the show. Um, you know, they wrote it, you know, over in the UK, Armando Iannucci and all British team of writers, directors, producers, they shot it in Baltimore, you know, loved watching it was, you know, obviously knew Julia from obviously Seinfeld was just a huge fan. Um, you know, you know, she, she ruins you for just every other, you know, I was about to say actress, but she ruins you for every actor in general that you'll ever work with. Um, and, uh, I get to call out of the blue that basically Armando was going to leave and nobody knew this thing. And unlike other sitcoms where, you know, you, you hear things, people talk about other shows, like in your writer's room or whatever, like word hadn't leaked. Like it was like, I was shocked. It was shocking to me that he was leaving. And, um, and I didn't know any of this. I know it now, but basically Casey Bloys felt I was the one. Um, Casey's now the head of all of HBO and everything, HBO Max. At the time, he was the head of comedy. And Armando was leaving, 
Julia and HBO wanted to try and keep it going. And, you know, I guess, thank God for him. He felt that I was the guy to do it. Um, they had plucked, you know, Jeff, Alec and I were doing curb with Larry. So to some extent they did this to Larry, they had kind of plucked Alec away and put him on Silicon Valley. And so that had worked very well. Originally Silicon Valley was put together by Mike judge. Alec wasn't involved. They added Alec to that mix. So when I guess it came time for Veep, it was sort of like, okay, what's the next curb guy? Okay. Dave Mandel. Wait, let's come screw on Larry down. again because you know, he yeah, doesn't exactly. have a show to get back at us. Uh-huh. Well, at the time, I guess technically we were sort of in a, a non-curb period, although obviously that eventually changed when he came back, which was, I, I wish there'd been some way to do both. But um, but so Casey suggested me, obviously I knew Julia, but I went and sat down with her and, you know, just start, you know, Ar Armando had sort of written the show into this wonderful corner with the Electoral College tie. And so it was this combination of meeting with Julia and talking to her, but then also kind of reading the scripts and then watching them of watching this sort of really wonderful, weird, really like almost like how the hell do you get out of this thing? Like if this tie happened. And then as I started, because it was such a problem, as I started to think of like things I wanted to do and every time I would kind of come back to Julia with more thoughts, whatever, and then, you know, we'd bounce stuff around and it just, before you knew it, it was like I was doing it. I, I mean, it's hard to, I don't know. You know, it was sort of like, I thought it was interesting, but the, the more I thought about it, the more just stuff just started, whatever. And in some ways I always say like out of those early conversations with Julia, we laid out a lot of like what became the three-year run that we did. Now, obviously things changed Trump, you know, just things like really changed because so much of what Veep was became almost very old fashioned. And I've talked about this elsewhere. The show you know, if you watch early Veep, it's, it, you know, the shocks are these faux pas, maybe these, this inappropriate language, the getting caught on film saying the wrong thing, or this idea that on front of the camera, these people are, you know, pretending and trying to do the right thing, but behind the camera, here's this reveal. And obviously Trump just upends all of that because all of a sudden there is no behind the camera. He's saying things, he, you know, he's, saying things like, you know, whatever, you know, he's groping, whatever. And, you know, and, and he's still elected president of the United States. So the, the fundamental basics of Veep went out the window. Basically it just made the show pointless, useless, and in some ways outdated while we were in theory prepping our final season, which got mm. delayed because of Julia's cancer. And I have jokingly said in some ways her cancer was the best thing that ever happened to Veep because had we just simply shot the show that we were going to shoot, which would then have aired during that first Trump, you know, like whatever Trump getting elected and whatnot, the show would have been. I don't know. I don't know if we would have pulled it off the air. I can't imagine HBO would have let us do that, but I cannot tell you how people would have just been like, that thing's done, that thing's whatever. But by, because of what ended up being the cancer sort of had a chance to kind of throw a lot of the original plans in the garbage and really try and try and stay. And we barely did by the end of that last season, we were a half a step ahead of what was going on in the actual Trump administration. But it was, you know, this just crazy wild thing. And again, you know, we, I'm glad we ended it when we did. I mean, I have no doubt people wanted more, but everything had changed. And I believe we got out just in time. And in some ways, the most fascinating thing is, and I'm sure some of it is, 
you know, now that you have HBO Max where anybody can go on and watch all of Veep right now if they want to, in a way that even with whatever HBO Go and on demand, I don't think people did. I feel like there I see or get sent more headlines and things as America gets stupider and starts actually trying to implement things we did on Veep, like 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 a couple of months ago, the 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 entire whatever House and Senate passed uh uh, a daylight, you know, trying to end daylight savings, which was something we had Jonah Ryan doing because yes. our consultants had advised us that this would be one of the stupid, we, we were trying to come up with what would be his Ronald Reagan, let's get rid of the 55 mile an hour speed limit, like these sort of micro issues that you build a campaign out of and getting rid of daylight savings seemed like the stupidest thing we could come up with. And now it's getting, you know, it's it's a leg, it's a legitimate point of american politics now and that is what has happened to america and so that happens and like i'm seeing washington post you know headlines and editorials with pictures from veep we haven't been on the air in 3 years i mean i find that veep is only becoming more relevant off the air in this very bizarro way um and, and it's just crazy but obviously going looping back around glad we ended it when we did glad we got out just in time and you know it was a different show for me cuz obviously it is less of that sort of like you know this guy did this and this guy did this and then how do those stories bounce into each other but construction wise you are setting up a lot of these little loose stories that in a perfect world are kind of finding their way to bump into each other somewhere near the end or you know selena because of this issue ends up screwing up her other issue. And so the structure and all of that kind of stuff. And again, what I learned from Larry structure, 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 outline, outline, outline. It's why those outlines for curb your enthusiasm are so good that you could write a script. You know, that's kind of what I tried to do with veep and just really kind of, you know, it's a different show than what Armando certainly did. It has similar DNA. I took it where I took it because that was the only thing I could do. And, uh, and it was, boy, it was really fun. It was, it was, the really, dialogue, it was really enjoyable. The dialogue was so crisp, so tasty, and the pacing of it was frenetic, and yet you didn't feel the anxiety that you felt with Curb. I can't describe it other than to say that it was, it, you had to hold on to the side of your chairs because you weren't sure what the hell was going to come out of her mouth next. The pace was my, I mean, it was always a fast show. And I do think I even perhaps stepped on the accelerator a bit. I just, it was a combination of a couple of things, which is one, I do love, I love the pace. I uh, just, uh, you know, give me Billy Wilder, some like it hot, Billy Wilder, one, two, three, just that rat, tat, 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 tat kind of thing. And obviously that is certainly present in Seinfeld a little differently in curb the 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 improv it has it being a little more a little more languid it's still jam-packed but a little more you know almost uh you know i think what makes people uncomfortable on curb is that moment of larry that kind of uh you know one more thing almost like a columbo kind of moment but with with veep especially with the large cast as we were jamming it full of more and more and more and just trying to make sure that everybody had a little bit of something and it just got so jam-packed and i just found that like in the edit room i could just take out i could on the floor i could fill any if there was any kind of a pause or a blank spot where i could stick in you know a richard splett line for sam or a you know a line over here for gary cole as ken i, I we filled every available 
blank spot with a line. And then in the edit room, I took out anything that wasn't necessary in any breath of air. There's none. And I, I, I'll put it up against one, two, three in terms of the pacing. Usually there's a moment towards the end of the episode when things sort of turn in on her, where you get a little of that curb, like, oh no, but there is less of that right from the, because, you know, with Larry, right from the first moment where, you know, he's walking by and sees a woman with a baby and he starts to go, excuse me, miss. And you go, oh God, what's he going to say? It's not, it's a different energy than that. But just in this incredible, insane ensemble where I could just give them anything and just, uh, just, just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was not a weak person in the character list, not a single person where no. you felt like they were, I feel like creating on, a lull or you could have almost made shows out of any one of those people, which was the, to the, and yet they were in some ways, you know, just, just, you know, again, it's almost like. I don't know. Like, you know, they talk about like, 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 like with boxers or, you know, you know, tennis players, it's like the guy that like hits with John McEnroe has to be fucking great. You Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like the guy that's going to spar with Muhammad Ali, like has to be really good. And that's, that's some of it. That's, I'm not saying that was the philosophy. I think the philosophy was just simply to get really funny people, but like Julia knows that she is incredible yes, unto herself, but she is triply incredible because she is hitting the ball back with these other people that she is not afraid to let also be fucking funny and let them have their moments and shine. And that's part of what makes Veep just work in just this insane way. You mentioned it, so I'll follow up. If you had to do a sequel on one of those characters, who would it be? Um... Oh boy, so hard. Honestly, it sounds silly. I I I I, I love love love. Um, I, they're all incredible. I, you know, I, I you know I think the and the answer for a lot of the world I feel like would be Jonah and. Yeah. I don't, I, 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 you'd have to surround him with a lot of different energy because I think you can't just have like 10 Jonah's doing Jonah things. So I, I've certainly, that's an answer. And that character just has, in some ways that character is modern politics. My, so, so Jonah and certainly uh, Tim is a delight. Um, and then the other answer would be if I, I would, I would kill to do more President Richard Splett. Uh, I just, uh, Sam Richardson, obviously just a dream. But I guess I, I, having done the the sharp edges, and again, not that Sam's edges are sharp, but they, they, you, they trick you. You get close to them thinking that they're covered in bubble wrap and that they're going to protect you. And then you realize they're sharp. It was such a different veep energy within veep that i just i love what he did with that character and i was really proud because he was a slightly somewhat newer character when i took over i had a little more i had room with all of them but i had maybe a little even much more room with him because he was there were there was not as many seasons of defining him anyway i I, the adventures of richard splatt would be very fun too so i mean vice president jonah ryan or the adventures of richard splatt so yeah only if you have his off-flogged yeah. assistant behind him who just took just took it up the ass every time something came out of his mouth. I mean, some of the, some of those back and forths and some of that dialogue was just 
you know, dare we say delicious. It was just insanity. David, what's next for you? I am in the edit room. That's where I will, I will, I will hang up with you and I will head to the edit room uh, for White House Plumbers, which is a five episode uh, HBO miniseries that I believe any day now they're going to tell us when it actually is airing. Um, but uh, so I'm not allowed to say anything quite yet, but we are working to finish it. Um, uh, so uh, I, you know, uh, if that helps, but uh, we, I shot that all uh, last year during COVID back East and I'm now editing it uh as we are, I think, approaching one of these Watergate anniversaries. But uh, uh, just a really interesting story about, obviously, the, it's about the guys that did the Watergate break-in who on some level are usually the people that you only see in the first five minutes of the Watergate movie. And then they go on to like Woodward and Bernstein or Inside the Oval Office or all of those things. And those people are kind of minor characters in this story. This is like who these guys were, why they broke in, where they were in their lives, and what it kind of cost them in some ways. And then along with that, what's really, I think, fascinating and uh, I think comes through is you really are seeing the birth in some ways um, in the, you know, late 60s, early 70s of that kind of, you know, uh, forgive me, I'll simply say uh, nutso, but you can use nutso as you see fit, but that uh, Republican true believerism where like, I'm going to get sick and die from COVID to prove a point. And that is the Watergate break-in in a nutshell, even though obviously it's two very different things. And uh, in some ways, again, one of these things a little bit like Veep, where when we started it, uh, it has only become more relevant as we are working on it, if that makes any sense. And, uh, and it's funny, but it's not a comedy. If that it's an hour, it's an hour long five episode miniseries. And it's not, it is funny. And it is funny because it, the, the plans and what they did and how they did it was just one fuck up after another, but they, they all paid just terrible prices depending on who you talk to. And, uh, it's an, it's an incredible story. Not, uh, not often told. I, I always sort of say a little bit, it's almost like the, uh, a little bit like the reservoir dogs version where you kind of get to see the guys after the robbery. It's a little bit of like, well, what happened to those guys that, you know, get arraigned at the very beginning of all the president's men, you know what I mean? And this is the show where you will actually go into the prison with them and see them in jail. And like I said, see the cost of what it did to their families and stuff. So, uh, at some point that will be on, uh, but, uh, that's what I'm editing as we speak. So yeah. Someday on HBO. Someday on HBO, I'll come back. I'll, I'll re-announce it then, uh, that, and, uh, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on right now. And am I allowed to, can I plug my podcast? Can I plug my podcast? I wish you would. I wish you would. It is completely unrelated to this, but if you have any interest in collecting, it's about movie prop collecting. It's called the stuff dreams are made of. And it's all about, it's about movie prop collecting and all sorts of aspects of the collecting world. And I, uh, co-host it with uh, Ryan Condal, who's the showrunner of the new, uh, also HBO uh, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon spinoff. So if you like that or any of my stuff or collecting, come on down, check us out. Stuff. I would like to, I I will check it out myself. I'd be delighted to, Uh, and I can't even imagine. I think you will, you will enjoy it in a nerdy way. I think you'll, you'll enjoy aspects of it. 
I about, can't wait to see what, you, what yeah. you guys have. I mean, I can't even imagine what you guys have between the two of you. You get to see, you get to see some Stormtrooper helmets. I'm not lying. You get to see a few, yeah. I mean, can I try one on? I'm no. just saying. No, I mean, no, no, no Kim Kardashian putting on the goddamn Marilyn Monroe dress. Nothing against your my head. Day. It's lovely. Your head is lovely, but it's not going in my Stormtrooper helmet. I'm sorry. Check out his podcast, everybody. <laughs> and I am thrilled that you guys took the time to listen to this. I, I thought it was incredible. I mean, I'm so sorry for all of you who have more questions. So use our Just Getting Started pod Instagram handle to send in more questions. And I will ask them of David by torturing him and showing up at his house at unexpected hours of the night. That'll be great. So thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We will see you next week.